Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. For it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Let me pray. Father, we ask that as we consider your word together this morning, that your spirit would illumine our hearts and minds. That we would understand the heart of the apostle as a pastor who wants to see the church continue in the faith. May we receive the word with repentance with faith, with joy. May we be decidedly influenced by your Spirit to continue in the faith, to trust Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, with the apostle who wrote Hebrews, one of the most gripping concerns any true pastor feels is the desire that the sheep entrusted to his care continue in the faith. There's nothing really more gut-wrenching and grievous than to watch the sheep wander away from the faith. I mean, we we all sing the song together, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. But it's the special burden of the elders to protect the sheep from wandering from the faith. Now, now there is a burden for the members as well, as we saw in Hebrews 10, 24, and 25. You gather together to encourage one another. We see it in Hebrews chapter 3 that you are taking care, lest there be in any of you an unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God, the, the kind of... Um, practice that becomes exhorting one another as long as it's called today so that none of you are deceived by or hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We see that for the members as well, but it is especially the burden of the elders or the pastors. As members, you might hear that a member, another member of the church is struggling with depression. You might hear that another member of the church is hospitalized due to illness. You might hear that they're losing their job. You might hear that they're straying from the Lord. You might hear that they're grumbling about church decisions or questioning something being taught by the pastors and elders or watching their marriages dissolve or overwhelmed by the rebellion of their children or caught in some grievous sin or being deceived by false doctrine, 
or worrying about major life decisions. You might hear about that for some members. And thus it becomes a burden that you shoulder with the other members of the body. And you feel some of the weight of that because you love and care for and feel a proper responsibility for the other members of the body. But I want you to consider for a moment the burden of knowing all of that for every member of the body. Of getting all those calls and texts every day of the week. Of being asked to meet with all those folks. And being given the responsibility of being a means that the Lord uses to keep those members from wandering away from the faith. All of them. And here's the heaviest part. Here's the heaviest part. It's not the late night texts on Saturday um, or the early morning texts on Monday when you're trying to prepare to preach or all the things that happen during the week. Here's the heaviest part. You do all of that knowing that you will stand before the Lord and give an account for how you handled all of that. Oh, oh, and we have our own families to be concerned with as well. That's why the apostle is keen throughout the book of Hebrews to warn the first century Christians against wandering away from the faith. He calls upon them to continue looking to Christ. He calls upon them to hear and obey his word. To continue gathering and encouraging and exhorting one another to correct one another lest we all fall into some grievous sin of apostasy. The Hebrew Christians, as you might know, were tempted, you've hopefully heard thus far, were tempted to walk away from the faith for for a variety of reasons. They were tempted to walk away from the faith because of the suffering of persecution. They were tempted because they were being drawn to return to their Jewish faith, complete with nation, temple, priesthood, and sacrifices. That system had a kind of national identity for them. They were tempted because they struggled with immaturity and doctrinal discernment. Hebrews chapter 5 goes into that. As they heard, really, the voices of competing teachers. They were tempted as they struggled with their own sinful hearts that drew their gaze away from the eternal reward and toward cherishing this present world. And in the midst of all this, In the midst of all that, the apostle knows that the temptations of the world and the flesh and the devil are drawing them even further from keeping their eyes upon Christ, the author and perfecter of their faith. So he teaches them and reminds them and warns them and exhorts them to continue in the faith. That's what you've heard for 13 chapters now. And we'll look at that this morning again as we want you to continue in the faith. We want you to continue in the faith. We're going to look at three commands, or really breaking the part, the text here, verse 7 through 17, into three parts uh, that are really um, three commands you're being exhorted to continue in. Here's the parts I'm going to break this into. First, continue in gospel doctrine, verses 7 through 9. Continue in gospel doctrine. <clears throat> Second, continue in Christian worship. Verses 10 through 16, continue in Christian worship. And third, continue in church membership. Continue in church membership, verse 17. So let's look at the first command of continuing in the faith. Continue in gospel doctrine. That's our first one we want to look at. Continue in gospel doctrine. Look at Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 7. And I'm going to read verses 7 through 9 together. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. For it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, which have not 
benefited those devoted to them. Now, when we look at this text, verses 7 through 9, we need to ask a few questions. And these are probably questions that pop to mind even immediately as you read them. First, and there's more than these few, but I'm going to ask these few. Who are these leaders that the Hebrews are to remember? Remember your leaders, that they're to consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Who are they? these leaders in verse 7? Second question, what's the relationship between verses 7 and 8? Why start with remember your leaders who spoke, those who spoke the word of God to you, imitate their faith, and then in verse 8 say Jesus Christ is the same today and yesterday, or yesterday and today and forever. What's the relationship between those verses? And then third, what's the nature of the diverse and strange teachings they should avoid in verse 9? Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. What's the nature of those teachings that they should avoid? Now, there are more questions that we can ask about these verses than that, but, but I want to deal with these three because they get us to the heart of the point being made. What's the point that's being made? I'm going to give you the point just straight up. The church is being commanded to continue in gospel doctrine. That's what it is. They're being con- commanded to continue in gospel doctrine. The gospel doctrine they had received. Now, let me establish how that's so by walking through the questions. Remember my first question. Who are the leaders, the Hebrews, that are remember and consider and imitate in verse 7? Look at the, verse 7 again. Remember your leaders. <clears throat> that phrase, remember your leaders. The word for leaders here is also a root word you can use for rulers. This could be translated rulers. This could be like a, a city magistrate of some kind who rules over the people. Those who rule with authority. They They're those who lead and guide in some way. They're leading and guiding and ruling. The Greek word here is likely speaking to those who hold a particular office. And a particular office of leadership over the members of the church. In other words, it's likely a reference to elders or pastors. Elders and pastors are just exchangeable words. I can interchange them if if you want. That's why we get the next phrase. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. These aren't your civil leaders. These are the leaders in your church. Those who spoke to you the word of God. Remember them. These rulers, these leaders, spoke the word of God to them. Now note something about that word spoke. Those who spoke to you the word of God. It doesn't say those who are speaking to you the word of God. It's not talking about those who presently speak to you the word of God, but those who in the past tense spoke the word of God to you. Who's that? Well, in the context of Hebrews, that's likely speaking about the apostles. Look at Hebrews chapter 2. Keep your hand there in Hebrews 13 and look over at Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 3. Note the word we. How shall we escape? Hebrews 2 and verse 3. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord. So who's the first one to speak the word of God? The Lord. Who's that? The Lord Jesus. Declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. Who heard from the Lord Jesus when he spoke? The apostles. It was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. See, Our leaders originally, if you're the first century Hebrew Christian church, are the apostles. They're the ones who first spoke the word of God to you. These witnesses who spoke the word of God to them are those who they're to consider. Look at the last phrase there of verse 7, Hebrews 13, 7. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Now, now this could also be translated something like consider the result of their way of life or their course of life or even consider the end of their way of life. That's what it's getting at. What was the outcome or result or end of their way of life? They were largely imprisoned and put to death. They were martyred. Remember them. 
Remember those leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the end of their way of life. Think long about the end of their way of life. Look closely and carefully into, meditate upon the end of their way of life. And imitate their faith. So the Greek word here is the word we get mimic from. Mimic it. Imitate it. The apostles, the evangelists, and other elders preached the gospel of these Christians, and many of them died for it. That was the end of their way of life, the outcome of, the way of, of their way of life. Consider the end of their way of life and imitate their faith. These gospel witnesses followed Christ. They picked up their cross and laid down their lives for Christ and his church. And you remember them by imitating the grace of faith you saw in their whole course of life, how they glorified the Lord as the fruit of the doctrine that they believed. They continued walking with the Lord down the road of suffering to the end. To the end. The outcome of their way of life was suffering unto death in faith. Remember them. Consider that. And imitate them. They endured to the end. Imitate their faith. That's a pretty heavy command. But it leads to a second question. What's the relationship, relationship between verse 7 and verse 8? Look at Hebrews 13, 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Now, one of the questions that immediately pops up for me as I'm studying this week is, why does this statement follow what was said in verse 7? Why? Why does Hebrews say, remember your leaders, those who spoke the word of God to you, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith, and then follow with, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Let me give you a couple of reasons to answer that. First, because Jesus is the substance of the word of God that was spoken to them by their leaders. When the word of God was spoken to them, what did the apostles preach? They preached Christ and him crucified. They preached that there is salvation and no other name under heaven by which men must be saved, but the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the author and perfecter of their faith. So the creedal truth, the creed that is taught in verse 8, is the substance of the word of God that was spoken to them in verse 7. That's one of the major relationships here. But there's a second one. The immutability of the Lord Jesus. Here it is. The immutability of the Lord Jesus is our hope in the midst of suffering as Christians. In other words, there's a pastoral impulse here. It's not just the word of God spoken to you is about Jesus, but there's a pastoral impulse for you who are going to walk into suffering. And that pastoral impulse is to remind you of the the immutability, the unchangingness of the Lord Jesus. Pastorally, the Spirit-inspired apostle knows that in suffering, you need to hear this good news. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. This immutability of Christ is an emphasis in Hebrews. Look at Hebrews 13.5, just before. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. See, I've committed myself to you, so I will never leave you nor forsake you. He is God with us, And he cannot change. Look at Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 17. Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 17. To see this emphasis. So when God desired to show more convincingly, chapter 6 and verse 17. 
So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, notice that unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. See, we have this strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. And what's that strong encouragement? God cannot change. Thus, his promises are always sure. They're as sure as he is. We have an anchor for our souls. And what is that anchor? Jesus has gone to heaven as our forerunner. And he cannot change. Look at Hebrews chapter 1. Because of this, our salvation is secure in Christ. Look at Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 10. Now, just so you know who's being spoken to in verse 10, if you look at Hebrews chapter 1, verse 8, you see, but of the Son, he says. Here is the Father speaking of the Son. Now, what does the Father say of the Son in verse 10? And you, Lord. This is talking about the Son. You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. See, the creation will end. Creation will come to an end. Jesus will roll it up like a scroll. But Jesus is the same. His years have no end. And if you are his, then you are invincibly kept by him. Persecution and death need not cause you to fear. That's what he's driving at. In fact, you can imitate the faith of the martyrs who came before you because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. The same Christ who administered his grace to Old Testament saints through the types and shadows of the sacrificial system, ministered his grace in the incarnation among the apostles, and even now ministers his grace to us. He does not change. That's our great comfort. So do not lose sight of those who ministered the gospel to you. That's what he's saying. Imitate their faith by keeping your gaze upon the Christ they preached. And do that to the end. But this leads to our third question. What's the nature of the diverse and strange teachings they should avoid? Look at verse 9. Do not be led away, Hebrews 13, 9. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. For it's good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. See, Hebrews 13.8 provides you with the one whom they set their faith upon, and Hebrews 13.9 is connected to it because these foreign and diverse teachings are leading them away from Christ. That's the connection. These teachings are not encouraging them, notice the phrase, to be strengthened by grace, but rather by some kind of observance of dietary restrictions. It's leading them away from the grace of God in Christ and to observance of some kind of asceticism if you don't know what asceticism is asceticism is a kind of severity to the body it's a denial to the body of any kind of pleasure even good godly pleasures that's what asceticism is now it seems this asceticism was prominent among both jews and gentiles frankly when the jews treated the mosaic covenant the old covenant as being in itself in itself the means of acceptance before God, rather than as a means through which they were pointed to Christ and received his grace, they were misunderstanding and abusing the Mosaic Covenant 
and really turning their dietary restrictions into a kind of asceticism. They were acting, in other words, when they did that like pagans. Please hear what I said. When the Jews treated the Mosaic Covenant as in and of itself saving, they were behaving like pagans. Because the Mosaic Covenant was typical and shadowy, pointing them forward to Christ who saves them. They were failing to understand that the grace of God in Christ is the only way of salvation. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. And the apostle wants the first century Christians to continue in that gospel doctrine. And Sovereign Grace, we want you to continue in that gospel doctrine. Every wind of doctrine that blows through is at root a doctrine that takes your gaze off of Christ and causes you to look away from grace to something else for your strength. Every single one of them. Rely upon something other than Christ and his grace for your strength. We want you to continue in gospel doctrine. The burden of the elders is that our church continue in gospel doctrine. Second, we want you to continue in Christian worship. And these are very tightly related. There's more than one command that comes in here, but we're summing it up and continue in Christian worship. Look at Hebrews 13 and verse 10. Hebrews 13 and verse 10. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. Now, what is this verse talking about? <laughs> this text lays the foundation for Christian worship. Lays the foundation for Christian worship. It is a text that refers to worship in the tabernacle. If you're not familiar with worship in the tabernacle, then I would encourage you to go read Exodus and Leviticus. If, you're, if you don't know where Leviticus is, if you try to read through your Bible, that's the point. Leviticus is in the place at which your Bible reading tends to stop. <laughs> right? But God gave Israel the tabernacle. And why did he give them the tabernacle? So they might dwell with him and he with them. Thus God gave them a sacrificial system to go with the tabernacle. Why? Because they could not enter the tabernacle due to their own sin. So here's the problem of man. We were made to dwell with God and God with us, but we're sinners. And so we cannot dwell with God, nor he with us. That's why Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden where God dwells. And when God calls Israel through the wilderness to Mount Sinai out of Egypt, he gives them a tabernacle and he says, I will dwell in that tabernacle with you and you will dwell there with me. The problem is you can't enter because of your sin. Even Moses, Exodus ends, even Moses can't enter. So now what? Now here comes the sacrificial system. The sacrificial system through which your sin could be atoned so that the priests, just the priests though, might enter God's presence on behalf of the people. There were some Levitical sacrifices which the priests could not eat, and that's what they're talking about here in verse 10. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have or the tabernacle have no right to eat. Listen, there are more than one kind of, there, sorry, there is more than one kind of Levitical sacrifice. Some Levitical sacrifices the priests would eat, but there was one kind of Levitical sacrifice the priests would never eat. They could not eat it. That's the one offered upon the altar for atonement. They could not eat the sacrifices of atonement for sin. The, the sacrifices for the forgiveness of their sins and the propitiation of God's wrath or the satisfying of God's wrath could not be eaten by the priests. They weren't allowed to eat it. Why? Look at verse 11 of Hebrews 13. For the bodies of those animals, those who are offered on the altar... This kind of sacrifice, the body of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places or the holy of holies in the tabernacle by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. 
So you can't eat them, those sacrifices, because they're burned outside the camp. Now what they're referring to here is the Day of Atonement. Leviticus chapter 16. This great day that happened once a year where the great high priest would enter the tabernacle and go into the Holy of Holies. Now they went into the tabernacle every day, but they went into the Holy of Holies one time a year on the Day of Atonement. And he would offer a sacrifice for his own sin and then for the sins of the people and he would go into the Holy of Holies and he would put the blood of that sacrifice on the altar, on the Ark of the Covenant. He would put that there upon the mercy seat. And then they would take that animal that was sacrificed, it's, they put the blood there, but they would take its body and its entrails and its dung and they would take it outside the city and burn it. Priests did not eat that. That was taken outside the city and burned. It was unclean, and it was wholly consumed by fire outside the city. That's what he's saying. They're burned outside the camp. Look, keep your hand there and look over at Leviticus chapter 16. Leviticus chapter 16. It's the third book in the Old Testament, <coughs> so the, thus the third book in your Bible. Leviticus chapter 16. We'll just look at this portion that Hebrews 13 is referring to. <coughs> And look at verse 27, Leviticus 16, verse 27. And the bull for the sin offering, that's that's for atonement. And the goat for the sin offering, whose body, or excuse me, whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place, or the holy of holies, shall be carried outside the camp. Their skin, and their flesh, and their dung shall be burned up with fire. And he who burns them shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water, and afterward he may come into the camp. See, on the Day of Atonement, the sacrificial lamb had its blood thrown on the mercy seat for atonement for sins. Then its carcass was carried outside the city to be burned. Both the dead body and the carrier of the dead body are made unclean in the process. This heightens the sense of Christ's humiliation. He went outside the gate. He went outside the gate, outside the camp, where the unclean dead bodies and dung are burned. He did this for us. Think of what he did so that our sins might be forgiven. He became as dung for us. Well, Hebrews is saying that we have an altar upon which the atoning sacrifice was made. And what is that altar? Well, the better question is, who is that altar? Jesus Christ is the high priest who enters the Holy of Holies. And the blood he carries there is his own. And the sacrifice he offers on that altar, he's also the altar. He is the priest, the sacrifice, and the altar offered on the Day of Atonement. All of it pointed to him. All of it. He went to the cross and paid the penalty do for our sins so that we can dwell with God. Look at Hebrews 13, 12, so that you know I'm not overextending this. So Jesus, so Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. I want you to catch what's being said here. Jesus went outside the gate of the city to Golgotha, to the place of uncleanness and shame. He went to the place where priests burned dead bodies and dung. And he became treated like those dead bodies and that dung for you and for me. He did that to sanctify us through his own blood. We were washed. He was made unclean. We were cleansed. Forgiven. Made new. Consecrated. So that we might be able to enter the Holy of Holies through the sacrifice of Christ, and dwell with God. 
and Christ's atonement outside the camp is the foundation of our worship. But what does our worship look like? That's the foundation of our worship. What does our worship look like? Look at verses 13 and 14 of Hebrews 13. Therefore, there's a connection because Jesus did that for us. Here you go. Let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For we have no lasting city, but we seek the city. We have no lasting city here, but we seek the city that is to come. What does it look like to worship if the foundation of our worship is the sacrifice of Christ outside the city? It looks like following Jesus outside the camp and bearing the same reproach he endured. It looks like knowing that we're not living for the present world, but for the one to come. Christ was humiliated, humiliated outside the camp, and we follow him into that humiliation. We forsake this world and we pant after Christ and heaven with him. He is the sufficient reward for what we forsake. That's why Paul can say that he counts all things but loss for the sake of knowing him and what? Sharing the fellowship of his sufferings. This worship looks like us, Romans 12, offering our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to him. It looks like sacrificing your life, your wealth, your reputation, your hopes and dreams for the sake of Christ's name and for the sake of Christ's people. Look at Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15 and 16. Through him, through Christ, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Notice that the foundation of your worship is Christ. That's why you, through him, continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge or confess, is the word there, homologeo, to confess his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Notice this priestly language here. Our great high priest went outside the camp and suffered for us. Therefore, we go outside the camp to worship him like priests who lay down our lives on behalf of other people, who confess his name. In Christ, we are priests who offer sacrifices. And what is our sacrifice? Well, first, the sacrifice of praise. What's the sacrifice of praise? Worship. Worship. We offer him thanksgiving and we confess his name. We offer him thanksgiving and we confess his name. That's why we're more than happy to put everything aside to gather with Christ's people on the Lord's day and lift up his name together to offer a sacrifice of praise. We offer him thanksgiving and confess his name. We confess his name to one another and we confess his name to our neighbors. We confess his name to the end of the earth. We do good further to our fellow believers in need. That's what he says right there. Through him let us continually offer up, verse 15, sacrifice of praise to God. And notice in verse 16, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God, to God. We do good to our fellow believers in need, and we share what we have with them. To do so is pleasing to God. Why do we worship by offering our lives and our lips and really whatever we have in this way? Because we're going to him at the cross. So we're joining Christ outside the camp, on Mount Golgotha at the cross. This is what Jesus said when he commanded us to pick up our cross and follow him. We've been saved in order to offer our lives for Christ. 
we haven't been saved so we can live our lives for ourselves and get a little forgiveness at the end. We've been saved, forgiven, so that we can offer our lives for Christ and his people. We've been created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It's difficult, though, isn't it? It's difficult due to to, to persecution. It's difficult due to suffering. It's difficult due to the pleasures of this world. It is easy to love the pleasures of this present world. Remember Paul says of Demas, Demas, in love with this present world, has abandoned me. But Christ is worth it. Christ is worth it. That's what author of Hebrews is telling you. He's enough. We have no lasting city here. We seek the city that's to come. So we need to continue in gospel doctrine looking to Christ and his grace alone. We need to continue in Christian worship, joining Christ outside the camp as those who die to self and live for others, especially for the name of Christ. And third, we need to continue in church membership. Look at verse 17. You didn't think I'd finish this whole section. (laughs) Verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. I prefer, by the way, let them do this with joy and and not with grieving as opposed to groaning. The language there is a little heavier than just groaning sort of sounds like complaining. But what they're trying to get at here is, is the sense of grief. And for that would be of no advantage to you, actually, that's a, that's a little weak as well. Um, and I'll explain why in a minute. This is speaking to those who are members of the body of Christ. Notice what he says. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. These are your current leaders. Those who are presently keeping, present tense, watch over your souls. And it's a command being given to members of the body of Christ. The Lord Jesus has appointed leaders over you. As the head of the church, he has given to his body pastors and teachers. They have been ordained by the Holy Spirit to this office. Now there are two types of elders we read about in Scripture. Elders who rule in the church and elders who who rule and teach regularly. You see that in verse First uh, Timothy 5.17. There's this distinction between those who have the single honor and those who have the double honor. We usually speak of them as elders and pastors, but we're both called the pastor. The distinction is one kind of elder is ruling almost exclusively, and the other is ruling and teaching on a full-time basis. Thus, they're getting paid, which is what it goes on to say in 1 Timothy 5.18. But all of these elders are given to keep watch over your soul. That word, look at there, obey your leaders, submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. That word to keep watch over your souls is literally to lose sleep over you. They lose sleep over you as they teach and guard and warn you. Now, why are they losing sleep? They're not losing sleep due to anxiety because they fear whether Christ is the chief shepherd and in control of all things. That's not why they're losing sleep. They're losing sleep due to working so diligently to watching over you because they work hard to the point of exhaustion. They're losing sleep because of their grief when you begin to wander. This is the language taken first from Ezekiel 3 and Ezekiel 33. We're not going to turn there, but in Ezekiel 3 and Ezekiel 33, he talks about elders like, this language gets picked up as elders being like the watchmen on the wall at night. If you think about the night watchman, when foreign invaders are coming, he has to warn the people in the city. If he does not warn the people in the city and they get slaughtered, Their blood is on his hands. If he warns them 
and they disregard his warning, then their blood is on their own hands. And he's not guilty of their blood. And elders are like watchmen on the wall at night. They watch out for foreign invaders and warn you if they're coming. If the watchmen fail to warn you, then your blood is on their hands. If they warn you and you fail to listen, your blood is on your hands and their hands are clean. And what's our duty as watchmen? Our duty is to teach sound doctrine and refute those who contradict, Titus 1.9. Our duty is to preach and teach and warn and encourage, 1 Timothy 3.16 all the way through chapter 4 and verse 5, or excuse me, 2 Timothy 3.16 all the way through chapter 4 and verse 5. But look at Acts chapter 20. Look at Acts chapter 20. And look at verse 28. Paul is speaking to the Ephesian elders. We knew that from verse 17. And as he speaks to the elders who he's left in charge of the church, he says this in verse 28 to those elders. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Do you know who's made the overseers, the overseers of this church? The Holy Spirit. Now pay attention, which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God. Um, that word overseers is, can also be translated guardians. Made you guardians, and that word care is to shepherd the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from your own selves, from among your own selves will rise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. And understand this, Paul's saying to a group of elders whom the Holy Spirit has made overseers, some of you are going to go south. You're going to go into heresy. You're going to become wolves. Some of you whom the Holy Spirit has made overseers, beware. Now he goes on to say, I know fierce wolves will come in, not spreading the flock, and from your own, among your own selves will rise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. Remember that for three years I did not cease night and or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. See, Paul is a faithful watchman. And he's commending the elders to be faithful watchmen. Paul's a faithful watchman, which is why he can say what he does in verse 26 of Acts 20. Look there. Therefore, I testify to you to this day, this day, that I am innocent of the blood of all of you. Why is he innocent of their blood? For I did not, verse 27, shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. In light of that, let's hear what Hebrews 13, 7, 17 says about the elders. Hebrews 13, 17, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. Now pay attention to this. Over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Did you catch that? The elders of this church, yes, they'll give an account to you, but that's not the threat here. They will stand before the Lord and give an account for your souls. I will stand before the Lord and give an account for your souls. We are those whom the Lord has put in this church to give an account for your souls. We're rulers in this church. That's the word. We are not sovereigns, but servants. We are servants of Christ's word. We are not owners of the sheep, but stewards of them. Christ owns the sheep, and Christ is the chief shepherd. We only serve the sheep on behalf of the head of the church, our Lord Jesus Christ. And our authority does not extend outside the word of God. Doesn't extend outside the word of God. John Owen describes our responsibility well. 
He says this, it's as if it were said, the work and design of these rulers is solely to take care of your souls. By all means, to preserve them from evil, sin, and backsliding, to instruct and feed them, to promote their faith and obedience, that they may be led safely to eternal rest. For this is this end is their office appointed. Why is the office of elder appointed? That's what he says. For this end is their office appointed, and herein do they labor continually. What is it? That they may lead you safely to eternal rest. We are here keeping watch by teaching, warning, care, prayer, and godly example. And we're appointed by Christ as his instruments. Hear this. I, I want the elders particularly to hear this. We're appointed by Christ as instruments to carry you home. And our faithfulness or our lack thereof will be brought before the judgment seat of Christ. And what will he do with faithless shepherds? He will cut them to pieces and cast them into hell. His warnings about that could not be more clear. Now notice the command given to church members. Obey your leaders and submit to them as they keep watch over your souls. Let them do this. Notice the last part. Let them do this. In other words, let them keep watch over your souls with joy and not with grieving or grief, for that would be of no advantage to you. Do you hear the relationship? The elders keep watch over your souls. You obey them and submit to them. You obey their word and submit to their rule. We have been given real authority by God. We've been but I want you to hear this. <laughs> that authority is circumscri- circumscribed by his word. Thus, it's real authority. The refusal to obey and submit to Christ's appointed elders over you is a sin. Now, again, I want to be clear because this always gets confused. I cannot command you to do anything outside of God's word. That which is either expressly laid down in God's word or may be derived by good and necessary consequence of God's word. But we can command you to do anything consistent with God's word. And you should want to obey and submit to your elders as we keep watch over your souls. For to do so, fail to do so causes us grief and is no, of no advantage to you. Now what does that mean? Well, he wants you to do it with joy because it does cause great joy among elders to see the church members walking in godliness. That's what John says in in third john verses three and four that it that it, it gives him great joy there is no greater joy than to see his children meaning the church walking in godliness and it also causes us great grief to see you walking in sin and rebellion we're losing sleep over you we're laboring diligently to study and pray and visit and counsel and discipline we're giving our lives for your sake and if you rebel it causes us grief Why does it cause us grief? Well, for the same reason you ought to obey, because it's of no advantage to you to rebel. What does that mean? It means your apostasy will lead to your eternal judgment. No advantage seems a little weak. What he's saying here is, if you don't obey the leaders who are watching over your souls to carry you home, if you rebel against them, that means you're running off into apostasy because you're denying the head of the church who is Christ. And when that happens to you, you're going to hell. So of no advantage to you is a little bit weak in translation. Like, I feel like of no advantage to me is that restaurant isn't open inside yet. That's of no advantage to me. <laughs> right? That's, that's not what it's talking about here. It grieves us to see you walk away from the Lord toward the judgment of his wrath. I know some of you might say, but... But that just means they were never really saved. And that's true. But please hear this. That doesn't make it easier to absorb the blow. You still love those people. It's not like the elders after these difficult meetings, when the person leaves, just go, well, we can comfort ourselves with the fact that they were never really saved in the first place. We're grieved. It's gut-wrenching. And unpleasant to watch you walk away. We often spend years with folks covering their shame. 
In other words, learning about all sorts of stuff you don't know that if you did know would be shameful to them, and we keep that private and quiet, and then when they finally just rebel, they often blow us up among other members and say all kinds of false and slanderous and unkind things. And as much as that grieves us, as much as we want to respond to that, we bite our tongues. And we guard our hearts. For that is not our supreme grief. Our primary grief is their apostasy. What it does to their life now, what it means for eternity, and how it dishonors the Lord. Sovereign Grace, we practice formal church membership so that we know who is covenanted with us to be under our care. So that we know. People ask, why formal church membership? So we know who's covenanted with us to be under our care, to know to whom we are committing to care for. That's why we have a membership process and a membership covenant and an interview and all that. We figure if we're expected to stand before the Lord and give an account for your soul, you could do us the favor of letting us know that. Now, our covenant's being updated, um, so you know, which you'll hear about in your email this week, due to a loophole in our covenant and bylaws. That loophole allowed folks to withdraw their membership while under church discipline in order to avoid the consequences of church discipline. That refusal to submit to the discipline of the church ought not to be codified in our bylaws and membership covenant in that way. It's unfaithful shepherding to allow for that. In other words, I want you to hear this. Because of our poor, ignorant planning in our bylaws and membership covenant, we have had members under discipline resign or revoke their membership, and we could do nothing about it. That's something for which we give account to the Lord. And so we're changing it. So we adopted a new set of bylaws and a new member covenant. We'll be sending it out soon. There's no real substantive change. I joke that it's, it's, it's a new covenant, but it's the same substance, just a different administration. The, um, <laughs> anyway, no real substantive change except for saying that you may not leave church membership if you're under church discipline. So you can leave church membership anytime you want voluntarily as a member in good standing. But if we start the church discipline proceedings because you're in unrepentant sin, that's when you just may not leave membership at that point. Christ has given the church a particular order, and there is a beauty and a use to that order. John Owen speaks to that. Listen to what he says. And herein consists the beauty and usefulness of church order, namely when the guides or leaders of it do make evident that their whole design is with labor and diligence to promote the eternal welfare of the souls of them that are committed under their care. And they, on the other hand, on account hereof, in other words, the members, do obey them in their doctrine and submit unto their rule. Without this, all pretense of order is but confusion. Sovereign Grace, we must continue in gospel doctrine, continue in Christian worship, and continue in church membership. It is precisely because so many of you do, because so many of you do, that our elders echo what Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 2. I want you to hear this because I I think this all the time. For what is our hope or joy or crown or boasting before our Lord Jesus is coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and our joy. Let me pray. Father, we are thankful. We're thankful that the apostle cared to preach and write this letter for the sake of our joy that we might continue in the faith. We pray that we would help us to be a people who continue in gospel doctrine, who look to Christ and his grace and not to ourselves to be strengthened. Help us to continue as a people who walk in Christian worship, who follow Christ outside the camp, 
and lay down our lives, confessing his name and helping one another. And Father, help us to continue in church membership, both as elders and as members, that we might care for one another's souls and so be, by that instrumentality, carried safely home. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.